Hello, I'm Elise Labatt of American University. And today we're talking about threats to democracy posed by the COVID pandemic. The global public health crisis we're facing has exacerbated not just an economic crisis, but has also fueled a sense of injustice and taxed shaky political systems. And to talk about the role of philanthropy in safeguarding democracy uh, in the age of COVID, I'm joined by Mark Malik brown president of the Open Society Foundations. Mark, great to see you again. Thanks, Elise. Pleasure to be here. So we've been talking a lot about lately how dem democracy is in retreat. And we know it didn't happen overnight. So talk to us a little bit about how we got here and what you think philanthropy can do to help stop this democratic decline? Well, it's been a steady one over the last couple of decades, and it sort of crept up on us unnoticed. I think we all were motoring on a euphoria of post-Cold War collapse and the rapid spread of democracy. It had started in, in post-colonial Africa and other regions, but really picked up pace as the Soviet empire collapsed. And we've just been very slow to pivot, to recognize that far from being on the offensive, democracy is now on its back foot that we've seen in Freedom House's annual reports on the state of democracy, steady declines notched up over much of the world after, over the last 15 years or so. Uh, and, you know, I just think we've not adjusted policies or taken stock of where we are in a way which says, this is a real crisis for freedom for people everywhere. And we need to sort of stand up to it and get organized to confront it. Well, as we speak, as you know, the, the Biden administration is convening this summit for democracy and naturally you know, rallying the world's democracies is a good kind of organizing or convening principle. But what do you think is missing here in this effort to actually strengthen democracy around the world on the ground? Well, it is on the ground that ultimately the battle for democracy is won or lost. It's more often than not street demonstrators risking their lives uh, to fight for the preservation or the establishment of democracy in their countries. And in the past, the most successful U.S. role was not imposing democracy, but it was, you know, forcing uh, governments to at least respect the right of their citizens and allow those demonstrations to continue and allow people power on the ground usually to determine uh, the outcome. And in recent years, we've just seen governments no longer listening to that pressure from the US or others. That is both because of the sort of rising competence and rising number of authoritarian and populist governments in the world, but it's also the weakness of the West, uh, a US which has sort of lost its global leadership role in recent years and a Europe not able to step in and fill the breach. And so, you know, we, we've got this terrible vacuum around democracy, uh, people still yearning for it, seeking it in many countries, but without the sort of backup from outside uh, that used to enable uh, democracy to both establish itself, be protected and preserved. Yeah, I want to talk about the connection now between COVID and the democracy crisis that many countries are facing. And I know you're very um, involved in vaccine equity. How does that play into it? I think it's absolutely key because it is the coming crisis of, if you like, 
injustice in the world. Uh, and it's not one which is sort of, you know, mitigated at this stage by just getting some more vaccine distribution, vital though that is. You know, it's spoken to an unjust system where in the developed world, you know, we all, most of us, have now had our second and certainly in many cases, me, certainly my third uh, shot. And yet many people in the developing world in Africa, less than 7% of the population is vaccinated, a much smaller portion of that with two shots. Uh, and so this inequality has allowed uh, new strains to take hold in Southern Africa, which now threaten all of us. So it's an issue of global health security, but it's above all a political and moral issue because you know, if we allow this to continue, we'll sort of create a strange health apartheid in the world where there's half the world where international travel will resume, we can trade with each other, and half the world that we're going to hold at arm's length for fear of the import of further variants and where economics will slow, the sense of political grievance about exclusion from the sort of vaccine access at the north is going to sort of flame, inflame further an already very divided uh, world politics. So, you know, a lot riding on the world rising to the occasion. And, you know, it's worth saying that the Biden administration has offered some late leadership, but even now, nothing like the scale that's needed given the scale of the crisis. You know, Biden's surrounded by people who've worked on Ebola and other regional health crises in the past, even in the drama of HIV AIDS at the turn of the century. But nobody's seen this kind of all enveloping, persistent global epidemic. And, you know, you have to go back to 1918 for its equivalent, uh, Spanish flu. And, you know, we simply are not rising to the occasion with sufficient imagination or political will. Yeah, you know, as we close, Mark, I mean, and you make such an important point about, you know, the new kind of definition of poverty is, is going to be whether you have a vaccine or not. And you've been in the trenches for decades. Open Society Foundation, George Soros, supporting democratic movements for more than 30 years. How important is this moment and ending the pandemic to, to shoring up democracy around the world? It's the key moment. It's a key moment where we can either start turning around the battle for democracy, we can notch up a real win by showing that there is equity and justice and solidarity in the world, uh, that we've risen as a global community to the challenge. And if we do that, then I think that same spirit of collaboration can let us tackle other problems together. And one thing which is beyond doubt is democracies work much better with each other uh, than authoritarian governments, particularly around the sort of principles of collaboration and burden sharing and justice in international affairs. So we need a big win to turn this anti-democratic tide. And if we win over COVID, that could be the turning point. If we lose, it will make the tide come a lot further in before we find another turning point. Well, it's a dire warning and we know democracy is a continuous journey and we have to keep focused on strengthening, protecting those ingredients of democracy to prevent further erosion. And, and philanthropy has such an important part to play, particularly um, in ending the pandemic. Mark Mellick-Brown, president of Open Society Foundations. Great to see you again. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Elise. And now back to Washington Post Live.
Welcome back. For those just joining, I'm David Ignatius, foreign affairs columnist for the Washington Post. My next guests in our discussion today of threats to democracy at home and abroad are former ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall, and former director of the Cybersecurity and uh, Infrastructure Security uh, Agency at the, the Department of Homeland Security. That's a mouthful, uh, Chris Krebs. Uh, Michael and Chris, welcome. Thanks for having us. Hey, David, good to see you. Chris, let me, let me uh, lead off with, with you. You uh, got sacked uh, last year in the last uh, months of the Trump administration, basically for trying to protect our elections and, and speaking out clearly and, and directly about, about threats to them. I want to ask you uh, how you would gauge threats to uh, elections at home and abroad, in particular in your area of specialization, uh, cybersecurity, but, but more generally, what would be your report card as of right now, December 2021? Well, I think I'm probably most uh, or best situated to talk about the domestic elections landscape. And I, I think the unfortunate reality is that uh, we, we probably you know, we're backsliding from an elections administration perspective, and it's not due to the professional election officials, the real heroes of the 2020 election. It's it's because of political interference uh, at the state level in federal uh, elections. And you know, specifically, you look at Arizona, you look at Georgia, you look at a few of the other states that were pivotal in the decision of the 2020 election. Uh, you know, last year, you're, you're seeing political uh, operatives hacks that have no election experience, instead, you know, bend the knee to the former president that are looking to take over secretary of state roles. Mark Fincham in Arizona and Jody Heiss in, in Georgia, they're running for those roles. I have serious concerns that if, if they are in the secretary of state role uh, certifying elections in 22 and 24, that uh, we may not have the Brad Raffensburgers and Katie Hobbs that, that actually uphold or upheld their constitutional duties the next time around. And in fact, we may have a different outcome with the, once again, political interference at that state level. Chris, a, a brief follow-up. Uh, Democrats in, in Congress argue that the situation is so serious in terms of, of threats to elections, election integrity and outcomes that we need new legislation to protect our, our elections. Do you think they're right? I, you know, don't just listen to Democrats in Congress. Look at Ben Ginsburg, a Republican election lawyer, wrote an op-ed in the National Review Online a couple of weeks ago, talked about how we need to uh, you know, update and amend the Electoral Count Act and uh, clarify <laughs> the role of the vice president. Uh, we need to clarify who the state executive is, whether secretary of state or the governors in certifying state elections, what it means when you have uh, con uh, contesting a state's results and perhaps raising the threshold beyond just one congressperson that can uh, that can object to a state's electoral slate. I think we need clarity in elections because if anything, the you know, operatives domestic and abroad have determined that there's ambiguity and that they can sit in the unclear gray space and create havoc uh, and undermine confidence in our public institutions. So you would support some some sort of legislative uh, attempt to, to clarify, including Ben Ginsburg's uh, proposal, and I, and I assume some other things you think need to be addressed. 
I, I think yes, uh, yes, and I would probably also throw into that bucket, uh, you know, requirements for independent uh, state bodies that can review uh, redistricting maps. I think we, that's going to be one of the key pivotal uh, uh, you know, areas that can be once again uh, pointed to for influencing future elections for the next ten years. So, uh, Michael, let me let me turn to you. We have just had uh, President Biden's summit uh, for, for democracies. Um, I'd be interested in your assessment of what that achieved and what it, it didn't. And I also want to ask you about yesterday's response from President Xi Jinping and uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, with their own uh, virtual counter summit. I'm tempted to call it the Dictators Club. But uh, what, did, what did you make of, of, uh, of, of their response? And also give us your assessment of how you think the, the, the summit that President Biden hosted went. Well, first, I think it was a great idea that he had the summit, right? So the counterfactual is some people said it was inappropriate to have the summit. I disagree with that. It, it brought attention to it. Look at David. You and I are talking about it right now. We wouldn't have been talking about democracy, we might not be having this session without that summit, right? So I think that's a, a, maybe a small bar to get over, but that was important. Uh, second, I do think uh, that the, the administration did pledge to do some new things on a variety of issues, uh, supporting independent media, fighting corruption, um, and USAID in particular, Isabel and, and Samantha Power and their team, I think put together a rather impressive package. It was modest by my view, from my view in terms of the numbers, but you know they're obviously trying to push and do something to renew our commitment to support uh, democracy abroad. What I thought was, was underdeveloped is exactly what you're just talking about with Chris. Um, the most important thing we can do to advance democracy abroad is to advance democracy at home. Uh, if you are worried about China's growing power in the world and the new Cold War 2.0, as many people in Washington are and lots of people out here at Stanford and Hoover, by the way, are, the most important thing we can do is exactly what you and Chris were just talking about. That is way more important than a $5 million program to support investigative journalism. And I just would have liked to have seen more of that, our pledging, what we're gonna do, uh, to be part of that bigger uh, conversation, but better than not having it. And now we have a year of action and I think that that's appropriate and I hope there will be a year of action. Now there's already been some reaction, like you said, like uh, I call it the illiberal international, just so you know, David, that's my term. Uh, remember, Democ uh, communists of the world unite. Uh, this is illiberals of the world unite. Um, and I do think they have, by the way, I think there's been lots more coordination between the autocrats of the world. Uh, Mr. Putin is running a very sophisticated game plan for, for decades now. It, it started with the Orange Revolution in 2004, where he is putting massive resources into propaganda, into media, into cyber, as, as Chris well knows, uh, to undermine democracy and to support his ideology. And I'm using that word purposely because I think there's too many people in the world and too many people in Washington who don't look at the ideological content of what Mr. Putin is doing. It is an ideological struggle. He has a, a set of views, a kind of conservative, illiberal orthodoxy, anti-multilateralism. He's been very consistent on it. I've followed him for years and, and sat in the room when he explained it to people like President Biden and vice, uh, vice, then Vice President, now President Biden and President Obama. 
Um, and he's had some successes. Let's be clear. You know, there are major movements in most of the of European democratic world that lean towards Putin instead of, you know, liberal democracies and, and President Biden. Uh, and yesterday, Xi Jinping has been more careful. He has a different ideology. It's an anti-democratic ideology. It's a much more successful system than the Russian uh, system has to offer right now. But, but they do, they are united in their um, uh, response to the liberal democratic world. And yesterday was a pretty you know, powerful response to say, yes, we understand this is an ideological competition and we are uh, ideologically aligned in this competition. Just a brief follow-up, uh, uh, Michael. Do you think that uh, we're making them nervous by stressing democracy? They would be nervous whether you stressed it or not. Uh, and that's a great question. Uh, and uh, I'm writing a book right now about lessons from the Cold War for how to deal with China and Russia. And I think this is a really important lesson. It doesn't matter, you know, David, you and I could sit out here at Stanford and, you know, in the faculty lounge and say, you know, it would be, it would be better if we were just more real politic about, you know, what we're going to do abroad and not talk about democracy and just uh, forget about it. Uh, and I want to be clear, we need to manage this ideological contest uh, in, in, in ways that we did not manage it uh, in the Cold War that led to travesty. Uh, many of the lessons from the Cold War are ones not to be repeated, in my view. But even if we said that, it doesn't matter for two reasons. One, the very existence of our system of democracy threatens the legitimacy of Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and every other autocrat in the world. So it doesn't matter what we say and do, it's, it's what we practice that matters. And when we don't practice democracy well, that strengthens their legitimacy. And that's the key point between domestic politics and international politics. Uh, conversely, and this is, things, uh, this is something I think we need to be honest about too, the very existence of an effective economic model autocratic economic model threatens the United States. Uh, and it's when it's combined with power, as it is in the case of China, that threatens the United States. And no amount of talking about de not having ideology involved in, in US-China's Russia's relation, uh, US-China and US-Russian uh, relations will diminish that. Uh, that's the first point. The second point is, um, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, I, I, I'm just, I'm agnostic. I think it's a good thing myself, but it is a thing, which is, is even if Joe Biden, President Biden got up one night and said, you know, I want to be more like Nixon or I want to be more like Metternich. Uh, I don't want to talk about all this ideology, although Metternich actually was a, a big suppressor of uh, liberal democratic movements. But let's not go back that far. I just, I don't want to talk about this. This summit of democracies, we let's pull it down. What if he had said that? Well, as you know well, um, President Biden's not the only foreign policy decision maker in the United States. Um, and if he did that, uh, and if he said, we're, we're no longer going to have uh, morals, we're not going to have normative issues in American foreign policy, there's all kinds of parts of our political system that would challenge him on that. Senator Cruz would challenge him. Senator Rubio would challenge him. The Washington Post would challenge him. Um, Thinking of our, our friend Fred Hyatt, who recently passed away, the you know the op-ed uh, page of the Washington Post would challenge him. S on China, Speaker Pelosi would challenge him. 
human rights groups would challenge him, religious groups would challenge him. In other words, you can't, as, as Henry Kissinger once said famously, you can't be Metternich uh, in the American political system because you don't have the same control over making policy. We are a democratic system, and therefore I think it's, uh, you know, it's part of who we are. As you said in an earlier interview, it goes all the way back to the founding of our republic, and when we were faced with do we support our allies, the French monarchy, or those that are ideologically aligned with us uh, during the French Revolution, that's when that debate really started, and it's been with us for 230 years, and I don't think it'll go away. Uh Thank you for that, Michael. I uh, look forward to the book. We'll have you back to talk about it when it's when it's done. I I hope. So, uh, Chris, let me ask you. Uh, you're a, a technologist, uh, understand cybersecurity. One of the paradoxes of our age is that this wonderful gift of the wide open internet has turned out to help autocrats stabilize their countries, suppress freedoms, and it's produced greater disorder uh, in, in democracies. It was supposed to work the other way around. Just wondering if you, uh, as you, as you think about it, see any ways to address that gross imbalance that it, it's, it empowers the bad guys and, and seems to harm the good guys. How do we deal with that? Well, when, you know, when I think about technology, it, it's, it's inherently dumb, right? It's not good. It's not evil. It's how people use it. And this is frankly, kind of always been the case in human history, starting with common languages, and as you move through technology with the radio, the mimeograph, TV, facsimile mach you know, fax machines, and now you've got the internet. And that's, I think, what's so remarkable is just the velocity of information, the access of information. And if you think to the dichotomy between the illiberal orders and the liberal democracies, uh, in liberal democracies, it's a bottom-up feature where information is shared and that we, we have um, a, a framework of engaging across the internet. And in, in illiberal orders, autocracies, dictatorships, it's a top-down regime where they control the information. And that's, that's I think, what it, when you think about an information operation, an influence operation, where a Chinese government operative or Russian government operative might sneak an ad into the New York Times or the Washington Post full page ad talking about how great they are. They see that as a huge success because if the flip were, you know, the, the inverse were to happen where there would be a single positive statement about democracy in some periodical in, in China or Russia, that would be a massive travesty and they would memory hold that just like in the Chinese government does uh, time and time again. Uh, so in, in terms of opening these back up, I, I think it's in part an isolation effect. We, we you know, we continue to, we, we have to continue to show the advantages of open information, uh, you know, societies like we have here in the U.S. and in other uh, liberal democracies and how that leads to further innovation that we can continue to drive the future of, you know, the human growth. Uh, the, the flip side, though, is is a has a, a much darker, a much uh, a more limited space of opportunity around it and continue to, you know, through the cracks and seams that are available in Russia and in China and their their government systems, you know, let the let the thousand flowers bloom here and let them show uh, what the opportunities we have are. Chris, a quick follow up. You, you were responsible for cybersecurity in the Trump administration, sometimes frustrating 
job. Uh, how do you think the, the, the Biden administration is doing on that front? They've got a lot of new positions and people. How, how are they doing? They are, uh, you know, brimming with talent. That's it, it's really remarkable. The team they've been able to put together throughout the various departments uh, and agencies. I couldn't be uh, more proud of of the agency that I had the the honor to lead, the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency. Jen Easterly is just doing a, a you know remarkable job there, and uh, the in, under incredibly trying circumstances. You know, right now we're sitting in the middle of a kind of a five alarm fire across the internet with a, a, a very ubiquitous uh, open source vulnerability that, that, that IT teams across the world are patching. And you know, one of the, the interesting trade-offs that we have to make is that there are other things going on in the world right now. I would look squarely at uh, the Russian soldiers amassing on the Ukrainian border, those geopolitical tensions there uh, the increased tension between China and Taiwan. If those things escalate further, it will not just be little green men and tanks rolling across the border. There will be digital operations that accompany any sort of first movement. And so there's a significant amount of planning and preparation happening that should be happening here in the U.S. and, and in our allied countries and uh, to, to, to support Ukraine and some of the other uh, areas of uh, operation that they may be affected. So they're doing a fantastic job. The, the cards are stacked against them, but I think given all of that, uh, they are making a they're making progress. Uh, thank you for that. I, I just want to note for our audience, consistent theme of our discussion of democracy has been bipartisanship, that these are issues that Republicans and Democrats uh, share a common perspective. There's Chris Krebs, who worked for President Trump, uh, lauding the work done by su successors in a Democratic administration. Uh, Michael uh, McFall, I want to ask you about the issue that uh, that Chris raised. You could argue the most immediate uh, visceral threat to democracy is 100,000 Russian troops along the Ukraine border who appear uh, to be preparing for a possible invasion uh, of Ukraine. You know Vladimir Putin as as well as any former ambassador, you've watched him close up, you've been tongue-lashed by him. Let, let me ask you what judgment you'd make about what he's going to do. Is he bluffing? Is he going to go over that line? Uh, is, is there a way to finesse his demand uh, for some sort of guarantees for Russia's security without doing something that we'll regret for decades? I don't know, David, uh, and nobody else knows. Uh, that's the first thing I want to say. Uh, um, uh, I do know Putin pretty well. I first met him in 1991, so we go way back. And I dealt with him in the government. I've written about him. Um, and the other, the other thing I know is that Vladimir Putin likes ambiguity. He likes uncertainty. He's very comfortable uh, in this moment right now. Whereas Americans were not very comfortable with uncertainty and ambiguity. That was a, a very stark lesson I learned uh, working in the government. I was in the government for five years uh, with Obama, President Obama's administration. You know, we're kind of engineers, David. You know, if there's a problem out there in the world, we want to fix it and we want to get in there with gusto and find a solution. Vladimir Putin's very comfortable with ambiguity about sovereignty, about wins. And um, very vividly, I remember, you know, right before I left in 2014 from Moscow, actually the day that Putin invaded Ukraine, was the day I ended my tenure as ambassador. And in the run-up to that, um, to remind your listeners and viewers, 
you know, we were in a contest over whether Mr. Yanukovych, the president of Ukraine, would sign up with the European Economic Union, Eurasian Economic Union that Putin was pushing versus the European Union. And in that initial battle, the Russians won. They gave him more money. And I saw a very senior Russian government official around that time. Um, and he said, Mike, here's, here's your problem, you Americans. He was speaking about the West. He said, uh, number one, we care more about Ukraine than you do. And number two, uh, you guys have short time, uh, you know, attention spans. So, you know, we'll be here forever. You'll forget about us and, and time will move on. And I think about that uh, quote because here we are now. We're not talking about Abkhazia. We're not talking about South Ossetia. We're not talking about Crimea. All those are parts that we don't talk about. We're talking about the new invasion, the new guarantees we have to make to Putin. And already because of that, I would say that's a major victory for Vladimir Putin. Uh, that that he's pocketed those victories. That's part of the past, and and nobody's talking about those interventions and those violations of sovereignty before. Um, and number two, um, he likes the fact that he so far has done. He's given nothing. He's he's indicated no um, uh, concessions, um, and we're now talking about concessions, right? So just I think from his point of view and the, the proposals that are now going to be talked about even today and tomorrow, that's already a second victory. Um, the, the third victory we have to avoid is things that we will live to regret, as you just said. And, and I actually feel pretty good about where President Biden is so far. I thought the, the meeting he had, it's always good to meet with leaders, even uh, adversaries. I, I, I firmly agree with that. Um, but it was also important the messaging that he said otherwise. I don't. We actually don't know what they really said in that meeting. Let's be clear about that. I, I wrote many of those readouts when I worked for President Obama, and they're not exactly every word <laughs> was exactly what happened in the meetings. We we left some things out from time to time. You wouldn't be surprised. So, and the Russian readout, by the way, was quite different than the American readout. Um, but the main message that President Biden delivered was there will be real consequences of military intervention. And I think that was the appropriate thing to do then. Um, the devil will be now in the details if there will be continued negotiations. And, and to oversimplify, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, wants a Yalta 2.0. Uh, he wants to sit with Biden. He actually doesn't want the Brits there anymore, but he wants to sit down with Biden and carve out a, you know, a sphere of influence, a new sphere of influence for Russia and agree to the rules of the road for European security. That would be a horrendous mistake to agree to that, both in substance and form. Um, in form, we should want a Helsinki 2.0, which is that, yeah, let's talk about European security. I think that's appropriate. And there's been a lot of erosions of those institutions over the last several years and decades. And some of that was on our side. I want to be clear. You know, the INF Treaty recently, the Trump administration walked away from. That was, in my view, a mistake. And that we don't have that in place is, is not good. The CFE Treaty is, is more or less moribund. So I think a big conversation about new European security issues and, and maybe even some new norms and probably treaties are too hard in America anymore, but a big conversation. But it's got to be with Ukrainians in the room, not the Ukrainians be the subject of those negotiations. And that I'm not sure uh, Vladimir Putin will agree to. Super helpful answer, folks. Uh, that's uh, as good uh, an account as you can get of big problems affecting us from two of the, the smartest people 
that uh, I know. Uh, Ambassador M Michael McFall, uh, former Assistant Director uh, Chris Krebs, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion of threats to democracy. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.